It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Joe Mott here. Welcome to the program. Around the time of the mid-1980s, a vigorous debate on the origin of life studies broke out about the implication of the information stored in the DNA molecule. It was acknowledged that current theories of chemical evolution had failed to explain the origin of the genetic information necessary to produce the first life. Some thought that the origin of life research simply needed more time to devise an explanation within a standard materialistic framework. Others, however, thought that scientists needed to consider a radically new explanatory approach, one that recognized the connection between intelligence and the production of information. One scientist, Professor Dean Kenyon, had converted to this latter view. Previously, Kenyon was known as an authority on chemical evolutionary theory and the scientific study of the origin of life. In the 1969 book, Biochemical Predestination, Kenyon and his co-author Gary Steinman argued that life might have arisen as crucial protein molecules first self-organized without assistance from DNA as the result of purely natural forces of chemical attraction between the smaller amino acid subunits out of which proteins are made. Many leading origin of life biochemists hail this bold hypothesis as the most plausible chemical evolutionary approach to explain the origin of life. Yet by the late 1970s, Kenyon began to question the plausibility of his own theory. And in the 1980s, he repudiated it altogether. Since the 1980s, the crisis in the origin of life research has only deepened. Francis Crick, one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, lamented in 1981, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense that the origin of life appear at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. Let me turn the page by telling you a story about the renowned British philosopher Anthony Flew. When I was in college in the late 1950s, I discovered some of the writings by Flew. I knew from those writings he was an atheist. But it turned out he was much more than the average run-of-the-mill atheist. From about 1953, he had become the most famous atheist in the world. 
and remained so until 2004. For five decades, Flew had launched a formidable attack against theism. In that period of time, he was not only the champion of atheism, but its darling as well. Atheists took particular pride in him because his philosophical and academic standing gave the impression that atheism had a firm intellectual foundation. But then, at the last of his public debates, at a symposium at New York University in May 2004, he stunned the world and dismayed the religion of atheism when he announced that he had repudiated a lifelong commitment to atheism. He now accepted the existence of God, the intelligent creator of the universe, citing, among other factors, evidence of intelligent design in the DNA molecule. In the 2007 book, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind, published by HarperCollins and authored by Flew in collaboration with Roy Abraham Varghese. Flew recounts how he came to the conclusion of the existence of a powerful, intelligent God. Flew was asked if his recent work on the origin of life pointed to the activity of an intelligence behind creation. He said, quotes, I now think it does almost entirely because of DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that has shown by almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. It is the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together, the meeting of these two parts at the right time, by chance, is simply minute. It is all a matter of the enormous complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like the work of intelligence. End quotes. Flew goes on to reveal... Quotes, this statement represented a major change of course for me, but it was nevertheless consistent with the principle I have embraced since the beginning of my philosophical life, of following the argument no matter where it leads, End quotes. One other participant in this symposium was the Israeli scientist Gerald Schroeder author of The Science of God, who gave a presentation. Flew remarks, I was particularly impressed with Jerry Schroeder's point-by-point refutation of what I call the monkey theorem. This idea, which has been presented in a number of forms and variations, defends the possibility arising by chance using the analogy of a multitude of monkeys banging away on computer keyboards and eventually ending up writing a Shakespearean sonnet. In his presentation, Schroeder took a sonnet for which he remembered the first line. 
shall I compare thee to a summer's day? The sun has a total of 488 letters. Rather than looking for a sequence of all the words from the sonnet, including spaces, Schroeder decided to look only for a sequence of the letters without the spaces. Then he asked, what is the likelihood of getting the 488 letters in the exact sequence in this sonnet? The answer is one chance out of 26 multiplied by itself 488 times, or 26 raised to the 488th power, or approximately 10 raised to the 690th power. By comparison, the number of particles, protons, electrons, and neutrons in the universe is 10 raised to the 80th power. Schroeder says, quote, if you took the entire universe and converted it to computer chips and had each computer chip able to spin out 488 trials, that's say a million times a second, producing random letters, the number of trials you would get since the beginning of time would be 10 raised to the 90th power. It would be off by a factor of 10 raised to the 600th power. You will never get a sonnet by chance. The universe would have to be 10 raised to the 600th power times larger. Yet, the world of atheism thinks the monkeys can do it every time, end quotes. After hearing Schroeder's presentation, Flew thought the monkey theorem was a load of rubbish. Flew adds, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that the universe is Intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originated in a divine source. Why do I believe this? Given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century, this is a world picture, as I see it, that has emerged from modern science. The announcement of his repudiation of atheism and his book created a great controversy highlighted by an article in the New York Times Magazine alleging that Flew's intellect had declined due to senility and moreover that the book was primarily the work of Varghese. However, Flew specifically denied this latter assertion stating instead that the book actually represented his views, although he did acknowledge that due to his advanced age, Vorghese had done most of the work of writing the book. In his conversion to belief in God, Flew fell from atheism's grace, and the darling of atheism suddenly was pronounced demented. Other charges were leveled against him. In chapter 7 of his book, Flew writes his announcements, quote, provoked an outcry from critics who cl claimed that I was not familiar with the latest work in abiogenesis, end quote. Flew then says, 
The latest work I have seen shows that the present physicist's view of the age of the universe gives too little time for these theories of abiogenesis to get the job done. Flew begins to look at the nature of life from a philosophical standpoint. He asks, quote, How can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends, self-replicating capabilities, and coded chemistry? Here we are not dealing with biology, but an entirely different category of problem. The mathematician David Berlinski describes the general drama surrounding the scientific understanding of the cell. Berlinski relates that the genetic message in DNA is duplicated in replication, copied from DNA to RNA in transcription. Following this, there is a translation whereby the message from RNA is conveyed to the amino acids, and finally the amino acids are assembled into proteins. In chapter 7, Flew asked this question, So how do we account for the origin of life? Flew then refers to the Nobel Prize-winning physiologist George Wald, who once had affirmed that Quotes, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. End quote. But later, Wald came to the contrary conclusion that a pre-existent mind composed a physical universe that breeds life. Wald discusses that in his 1992 article entitled Life and Mind in the Universe, in the book Cosmos, Bios, Theos, edited by Henry Marginal and Roy Abraham Vorghese. Wall said, rather than emerging as a late outgrowth in the evolution of life, mind has existed always that the stuff of which physical reality is constructed is mind stuff. It is mind that has composed a physical universe that breeds life, and so eventually evolves creatures that know and create. Science, art, and technology-making creatures. Inputs. Then Flew explains, this too is my conclusion. The only satisfactory explanation for the origin of such end-directed, self-replicating life as we see on Earth is an infinitely intelligent mind. Allow me to close this episode of the program with a vignette about the life of the architect. Frank Lloyd Wright. He told of an incident that seemed insignificant at the time, but had a profound influence on the rest of his life. The winter he was nine, he went walking across a snow-covered field with his reserved, no-nonsense uncle. As the two of them reached the far end of the field, his uncle stopped him. 
he pointed out his own tracks in the snow, straight and true as an arrow's flight. And then young Frank's tracks meandering all over the field. He said, notice how your tracks wander aimlessly from the fence to the cattle to the woods and back again. And see how my tracks aim directly to my goal. There is an important lesson in that. Years later, the world-famous architect liked to tell how this experience had greatly contributed to his philosophy in life. I determined right then, he'd say with a twinkle in his eye, not to miss most things in life as my uncle had. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.